Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. This week we have some terrific guests. First up, we're going to talk to the State Board of Education Chair, Bill Coby, about a variety of topics, including proposals in the Senate and the House budgets that affect the State Board. Then in the second segment, we're going to focus in on charter schools with the head of the state's charter school advisory board and the founding director of one of the area's growing charter schools. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our uh, headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The North Carolina House released its budget this week, and there's some key differences from the Senate. Most state employees would get a $1,000 raise under the House budget, with increases for teachers ranging from 1% to 6%. All teachers would receive some increase. The Senate budget pr proposed an average 3.7% increase with no increases for beginning teachers or for the state's most veteran teachers. The House budget maintains funding for Governor's School, the summer program for gifted students that would be defunded by the Senate. The House budget increases preschool funding to eliminate the current wait list of almost 5,000 families, while the Senate would increase the budget but leave about 2,300 children on the waiting list. Like the Senate, the House budget contains no specific funding for specialty teachers like art, music, and PE that may be affected by mandated class size reductions. If you watched last week's show, you know about the now infamous 3 a.m. Senate budget amendment. The House budget proposed reversing most of the cuts that targeted eastern North Carolina counties represented by Democrats. They proposed restoring the $300,000 cut to the eastern North Carolina STEM program and making two early college high schools in Northampton and Washington counties eligible for extra money. Those two schools are in Senator Erica Smith Ingram's district, who's shown here, had been cut by the amendment. The Senate also called for taking money out of Democrats' districts that teacher assistants used to help get teaching licenses and shifted the funding to Republican districts. The House budget proposal eliminates funding for that program altogether. One place the House and the Senate are in lockstep agreement is increasing funding for private school vouchers. This comes the week after Education Secretary Betsy DeVos released her first budget that proposes massive expansion of federal investment promoting vouchers for private and religious schools. This year's state budget allocated $34.8 million for the vouchers called Opportunity Scholarships here. Both the House and the Senate add $10 million more in 2017-2018 and another $10 million in 2018-2019. There is a key difference in that the House would require voucher students to take the Iowa test of basic skills to measure their academic progress. It also includes nearly $1 million over two years to hire an independent research group to evaluate the recipient's academic outcomes. Voucher programs like that one in North Carolina have been criticized for lack of accountability and transparency. Now remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics we covered this week. As I said at the top of the show, our first guest is making a return visit to Education Matters. He is Bill Kobe. He is the chairman of the State Board of Education. Thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thanks, thanks for having me, Keith. Well, I want to jump right in. We've got a, a few topics I want to cover with you. Now, sure. the last time you were on, we talked about the, uh, the pending um, court case, basically the lawsuit right. with the State Board and the General Assembly over some powers that have been shifted 
um, over to uh, Superintendent Mark Johnson. Now, that's expected to hear what, June 29th? That's correct, uh, in Raleigh at the Court of Appeals. Okay, so that's a three-judge panel. Now, now I have to say, what, looking at the uh, what the legislature did over the last few weeks, it doesn't look like they're waiting for June 29th to sort of take a stand on a few things. They took a few whacks uh, at the State Board of Education budget. Um, there are some positions that were cut. Uh, I see the Senate eliminated four or five fill positions. Um, the Senate also uh, is, is giving some money, both the House and the Senate, to support uh, the superintendent in litigation. Sort of what? Um, sort of where are you right now in terms of you know uh, what's going on? Well, I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I, I have no problem with the superintendent getting money uh, to have his own counsel, but uh, when I look at it. Uh, it, it, I hope the process, and I do trust the process, will reverse what the Senate has proposed. Right. Now, here's the, and you and I have talked about this before. We talked about it on the show. Here's the thing I can't figure out. I mean, this all started back in December with the special right. session when uh, a lot of, of, of what you would say were constitutional um, authority that you should have, that you have, right. um, were shifted to the state superintendent. I can't figure out why, um, because honestly, when I look at it, um, your policy positions, I mean, you're a Republican appointed by Pat McCrory, Mark Johnson, a Republican. We've had him on the show a few weeks ago. Do you have any policy differences um, in terms of uh, education with um, the superintendent? There's no major policy differences with the superintendent or the legislature. <clears throat> there are people in the legislature that believe that since the superintendent is elected statewide, that he should have more authority over what happens at DPI. Uh, the problem with that is it runs counter to what is in the state constitution. And we as members of the State Board of Education swore to uphold the constitution. So that's simply what we're doing. Right. So you don't, you're obviously looking forward to having this, um, this resolved one way or the other. Now, we don't know what's going to happen um, after the, the hearing. And, uh, I mean, I think everyone would presume that there would be appeals from whoever didn't, doesn't like that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the way things go, right? Uh, if you look at history, yes, that's usually right. the way it goes. Right. All right. Well, let's, um, uh, so we'll, we're going to see what happens. And now, I want to get into some of the other things. Um, okay. Obviously, with um, uh, the State Board of Education sets, it basically sets policy for public education in North Carolina, implements based on the laws that the legislature right. passes. Um, and then the Department of Public Instruction staff and superintendent administer those. That's right. The Senate budget um, particularly has some pretty s steep cuts in, in uh, the department's budget. Do you have some concerns about that? Absolutely. And the superintendent should be very concerned, too, because the superintendent manages the Department of Public Instruction. We don't get into management. And the General Assembly keeps adding work right. to the, the Department of Public Instruction and to the State Board of Education. And you, I, it's illogical to continue to add work and reduce resources. Now, I'm all about efficiency, but there's a limit to how efficient you can be. And I am really encouraged that the House budget does not propose cutting the DPI budget at all. Right. And I, and I think I, I read online that uh, uh, there are 21 new reporting requirements for DPI in the House <laughs> budget and eight eight new ones in the Senate, but they cut them by 25%, which again, to, to your point, that's a lot of work. Um, and a lot of resources to put those reports together and do them well. Now you work, um, obviously, as, as, your, as your role as chair of the state board, you work a lot with uh, the staff at DPI. I mean, 
the, I guess when I think about it, the buckets of work, it's they're, they're sort of a sort of an oversight, kind of a regulatory right. piece of it. But there's also these supports, uh, particularly in um, you know more rural counties and low income. Does that I mean? Do you think that this kind of cuts would have an impact on what DPI is able to do? Absolutely. It's the rural, it's the poor counties that count on our resources and how we can help them more than the wealthy counties. That's just logical. So, you know, it's an equity matter. Uh, when you think about where do you cut, you can't cut the financial operation because we have to distribute about $9 billion and, and provide oversight. So you get into things like professional development, and school and district transformation services, te uh, uh, teacher, coaches. I mean, you get into a lot of things that add value, particularly in the poor and rural counties. Right. Now, this week, um, State Board um, uh, of Education is meeting. What are the um, sort of what are the top issues that um, that you guys are um, looking at this week? Well, uh, I think the one that hopefully will be resolved this week has to do with. K-8 math standards. We've been working on that for several years and it, our staff and the teachers across the state that have worked with our staff have done an outstanding job of uh, creating North Carolina standards in the area of English language art and K-8 math and high school math. So that's the main focus. And, that's, and this is some of the recommendations that grew out of the Academic um, Standards Review Commission, is that right? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Um, well, look, we appreciate you um, coming on the show to talk to us about everything today. Uh, we'll look forward to, we'll see what happens at the end of June and see if some of these things can get resolved because uh, uh, obviously there's a lot of work to be done for the children of North Carolina in education and um, we want you and, and Superintendent Johnson to be focused on that instead of uh, well, litigation. We're, we're making progress in spite of the lawsuit and uh, the lawsuit hopefully will add clarity uh, because it's not t been totally clear for decades. Right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks okay. so much for being Thank here. You. Appreciate it. Before we go to break, see if you can answer this question. The state of North Carolina provides the single largest share of local school funding. What is the next largest source? Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer B? The state of North Carolina provides about 64% of funding for local public schools with the next largest amount coming from local funds via property taxes primarily, about 25% of the total. Our next guests are both charter school leaders and one actually chairs the state's charter school advisory board. That would be one Alex Quigley. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Alex, in addition to being chair of the North Carolina Charter School Advisory Board, you're also the managing director of the PAVE Charter School. So we'll have to, uh, you can have to give us a little plug about, what the, about PAVE. Next to him is Eric Grundon. Eric is the chief school officer and founding director of Research Triangle High School uh, here in the Triangle. Thanks mm -hmm. for being here, both of you. Thank you. We talk a lot about charters. We haven't really had any guests to really dig into some of the issues, so that's what I want to do today. I thought what I would do first is I want to ask about a couple of specific charter policy proposals that, are, that have come forth in the legislature and then maybe back up a little bit and yep. talk about the, the big picture of charters. And I'm going to start with you, um, Alex. Um, 
two bills that have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, well, there's one in the House and the Senate um, that are, it's called, well, the actual name of the bill is Charter Schools in the Workplace, I believe. But it's, uh, it basically would allow uh, private companies who donate or invest money or property into to a charter school to open a charter school, I mean, presumably on their campus, and that the, um, um, the charter would then reserve up to 50% of their seats for employees of that company. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I don't think that this is a bill that focuses on a need that we see in the charter sector. In my conversations with charter school leaders, they believe um, this, is, this isn't something that they're, they're necessarily asking for or, or are seeking. Um, we, we don't want to give the perception that schools are, are uh, ways for companies to uh, grow or to provide specialized seats for, for their for the, their employees. It's also not, doesn't seem that it's consistent with uh, the original purposes of charter schools, which are to expand opportunities for, for all students. Uh, this, would, this would enable a school to really limit its uh, pure lottery students to about 35% after you counted board preferences and sibling preferences. So this seems to me a solution that's uh, looking for a problem. Now, uh, Eric, I mean, I mean, to me, it, it sounds a little bit like a private school uh, uh, paid for by taxpayers on, sitting on a co on a company campus. I mean, what have um, you guys looked at it? What, what are your thoughts? Well, that's, that's what strikes me too. Is that it seems like an easy way to buy your way into a school if you were looking for access to a place. Uh, personally, at, at our school, we have a lot of public, a lot of private partnerships. We have a lot of corporate donors, especially where we are in, in RTP, and that was a big reason why we opened our school was to make those kind of connections. But we would never have imagined or wanted to think that we would offer some kind of special concession to those those donors right uh, right well one of the other one of the other proposals that uh, came out um, in the in the Senate side um, I believe was the uh, the first place we saw it was around the issue actually no it was a house bill uh, fast track um, sort of automatic approvals for growth now this hits straight into your role as chair sure. of the charter school advisory board and I should have mentioned that at the very beginning I mean this is a this is a state board that really does um, you know kind of provide well, one is sort of a regulatory oversight as part of the state board, correct? And then yes. you also are the ones who grant charters. I mean, yes. you're the authorizer. So, but this is this would be a bill that would basically say that uh, charters. It was I think it was at 1.40, 50%. If they could continue to expand and grow without going back to the state for express approval, right? Um, what do you think about something like that? Well, first of all, the right now it sits at 20%, which is a, is a pretty sizable increase uh, year over year for a charter. It also doesn't include charters in the first uh, five years because their charter actually lays out their growth trajectory. So they, they could grow more than the 20% in the first five years if that's the trajectory that growth trajectory that they're on. Uh, we have a system that works on the Charter School Advisory Board. If schools want to gain approval for more than 20%, they come before our board if they meet the criteria. Uh, last year, we granted almost all of those. Uh, as long as they met the criteria, the state board approved them. So there's a process that's in place that's working. Now, we've covered on our show before um, uh, the issues that were that swirled around Kestrel Heights in Durham. And that was the charter school that had over several years had hundreds of students who yes. didn't meet graduation requirements. I mean, how did that happen? I mean, is this something, is that, does this speak to the fact that we need more oversight? Um, I guess, how do we make sure that doesn't happen, that other parents don't have their, all of a sudden find their child isn't really getting what they thought they were getting? Well, one, I, I think that this is a, this is a situation that 
it's, it's something that's probably, we know it's happened in, in a traditional public school districts as well. Uh, but obviously Kestrel is a, is a charter school, so we're the ones that are going to hold them accountable for that. I think what it, what it means is that charter schools trade uh, accountability and for that autonomy. And you know the accountability was tough in this regard. They've lost their high school as right. a result. So um, we at the Charter School Advisory Board have implemented some new steps with the Office of Charter Schools to make sure that there are going to be some checks, some additional checks that uh, high schools have to go through to ensure that they're, they're hitting all those criteria for diploma requirements. And we're digging a little bit deeper there. So we've learned some good lessons from the process that will ensure that, uh, I, but I think all parents can feel very confident that uh, the Office of Charter Schools and the Charter School Advisory Board takes this really seriously and okay. is going to be putting some additional steps in place. Now, um, Eric, you're, um, you helped found Research Triangle High School, yes. right? One of the growing schools uh, open, what, uh, how many years ago? Well, this is our fifth year. Fifth year, okay. Big picture, how do, what do you see as the role of the charter school? I mean, why, why have charter schools? What do you see them as their purpose? So personally, I wanted to open this school and it opened as a charter school so I would have that autonomy. So I wouldn't be thinking that there's a district telling me how to work with my own students. It's hyper-local control, if you want to put it that way. Um, I need to make decisions and want to be able to make decisions that affect my students directly in the most effective way. That is what I think charter schools provide, is a way to um, offer that more selective um, assistance to your students, you know, mm -hmm. be able to make those those kind of local decisions. Uh, charter schools also innovate, and one of the things that we do at our school is we're trying very, very hard to implement new and different ways of, of educating. We're working in personalized learning now and trying to encourage more schools to adopt that. Uh, we were a BYOD school five years ago when we first opened, a one-to-one -one computing environment. A number of different things that we've tried to do in order to help look at Big E education and say to people, hey, here's some things that we've tried that we think might work for you and your schools wherever you are. Right. Come take a look. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up with you, Alex. I mean, what are your as, as sort of a big picture? What do you um, think we need to be doing in terms of making sure we have a uh, continue to have a healthy and, and good charter sector in North Carolina? Yeah, well, I think the authorization process and through my experience on the Charter School Advisory Board, I've seen that how critical that is. There's a report that was recently released that illustrated. Um, the importance of strong authorizing to ensure that schools are successful out of the gate. We've seen, a, we've cut in half the percent of schools uh, from 25% to 8%, the schools in North Carolina, charter schools that have had trouble opening or had a, had a, a failed start. Uh, and the, in, in the most recent year that we have data, it's down to 0%. So well, we've improved the authorization process, and that's important. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, we appreciate you both being here. We never have enough time, it seems like, but we're gonna, we'll keep talking about charter schools. Thank you both for what you do. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight Peter Josies in Orange County. Mr. Josies is passionate about students and about students maximizing their potential. Beyond the subject level, he wants students to know that they have the power to succeed. And he has latched onto AVID as one of the most amazing tools to help students recognize that. So AVID takes 
students and teaches them how to be successful. And if we can get them to be successful in a school setting, then they carry that forth and can be successful in careers, in families, in life. He's always helping us make sure we think positive and always get to the point that we need to be at. As I like to say, he's like a guardian angel. He's helped me with a lot of things. He opens up a lot of opportunities yes. for us, especially now that we're going into high school. My mission is to help young people be successful in school and in life. And I think that's very important to combine the two. We teach our kids to try to build a culture, a culture of how to be successful. Mr. Josies tries to highlight what he calls the keys to success. And those are all words that are in the unwritten curriculum. Determination and motivation and curiosity and social intelligence. So I try to look at every opportunity I get to connect the keys to success to those strategies of collaborating in a group, a 21st century skill that's very important. We also go on college trips to go to a school like Elon and see a library bigger than their entire school. I want to build these experiences with our students so they see the goal is to go to college. Not all my kids are making the highest level on their test at the end of the year, but I want them to do better. Wherever they are, I want them to grow. And I tell them if they do their best, those doors of opportunity will open up. I will not worry about them the rest of their lives because I know they will figure out they will do what they need to do to be successful. If you need, know someone who deserves to be recognized, please visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. When the original legislation was passed back in 1996 to open the door for the creation of charter schools in North Carolina, the pitch was that charter schools would be laboratories of innovation where different school models could be tried and the best practices could be shared with traditional public schools. That really was a key message around charter schools nationally, a place to try some, free, try some things free of some of the rules and bureaucracy that was often found in typical public school systems. Now fast forward to today, I'm not sure even the most ardent charter school supporters, and I consider myself a charter school supporter as a former charter parent, can truly say there's been much sharing of best practices. I don't really lay the entire fault at the charter schools. District schools have been wary and view charters more as threats than potential partners. Here in North Carolina, the way charter schools are funded, where money is taken directly from the local district to give to each individual charter school, almost guarantees there's tension between district schools and charters. There are a few places in the U.S., like Denver, where it seems charters and district schools cooperate and do share ideas. One thing that we have been able to do so far in North Carolina is maintain high standards for our charter schools, both academically and financially. Our state has largely avoided the ugly headlines from other states where questionable charters spring up and shut down, leaving parents and students and the local school districts holding the bag. The lifting of the 100 charter school cap in 2011, followed by now a continuing series of new laws to expedite the approval of new charter schools, some backed by national for-profit charter school chains, should give us all pause. Proposed laws like the one we discussed today where private companies essentially set up a private school for their employees funded by taxpayers under the guise of a public charter school is something the state ought to avoid. 
along with efforts to grant automatic enrollment growth and approvals of new charters. There's a reason why we have a charter school advisory board and a state board of education to provide some accountability and transparency. That should be strengthened, not weakened, especially with the blurring of lines between public education and private enterprise. That's it for this week's show. Uh, we're going to be off next week, but we'll be back the weekend of June 17th. Thanks for watching Education Matters. We'll see you soon.